All right, welcome, welcome. We're glad that you were here. We're beginning on time. Uh, glad you were here for the first session of, I think we basically have said this is going to be a six-week course. I'm going to take a little elder liberty here and say we're going to go beyond the six weeks, at least into a seventh week, and here's the reason. We're going to want to give time after we have presented the material that we have at least one Sunday morning to a time of discussing what may be considered problem texts. And you'll understand that as we go through this material. Some of those texts which look like they contradict what is being taught. And we need to discuss two or three of those because you're going to wind up facing those from time to time. And we may or may not have time to go in great detail during the particular time of that that class, whatever it would be dealing with. Secondly, I am hoping that as we go through this, first I'm knowing this, you're going to wind up with more questions than you think you're going to have. You're going to have more questions than you think you're going to have. But what about, what if, well, how can that be? What? Let me encourage you, please, please, write questions in your notes and if by the end of the process the six weeks you haven't had the question satisfied to your understanding we may have answered it but maybe to your understanding you haven't had it satisfied hopefully that seventh class we will have opportunity to answer your question and even if we haven't maybe there are too many questions we would still like to feel those questions and to deal with them. And so at that point, if we haven't dealt with them adequately, then email us. Get together with us. Because one of the things we don't want to happen is this. We don't want your misunderstanding to be used by the enemy to undercut your dependence upon the Word and your security in the Word of God, which is what the enemy would love to do. Okay? So let me just encourage you in that. Let's begin this morning with prayer. Father, thank you so much. Father, this morning, we begin a series of teaching which is so close to your heart. So significant in our understanding of who you are and how you are. Father, in the centrality of grace, and of mercy and of your justice all of this your righteousness and your goodness coming together and being displayed through the gospel father we're asking today that you will begin in a much larger way to illumine our minds to be revealing understanding of your truth to us Father, we know that at the end of the course, every one of us, the teachers included, are going to wind up with questions. Father, we're not going to understand everything, and never will we understand everything on this side. Even in eternity, we will never understand everything. But you are bringing us into a greater and greater understanding. So, Father, we ask this, that you will give us the understanding that you know we need and that you desire us to have in order to be able to function as your 
children to your glory. Father, we don't want to go beyond that. We want to have it. We want to be satisfied with what you give. And we want to walk in what you give rather than trying to go beyond it. So, Father, do a wonderful work beginning this morning and throughout this course that we may, at the other end of it, emerge as those members of your church that have experienced and are being filled with a greater experience of your joy because of who you are and what you have done in us and for us and through us. Father, all of this is a display of the magnificence, the astounding, incredible magnificence of your person. We just praise you for this. We ask that you give us ability way beyond our natural abilities to communicate by your spirit to our souls, our hearts, and our minds. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, again, thank you for being here on time. And let me encourage those of you who are coming in a little late. Thank you for being here. But please, let's make sure we get here on time. Somebody's going to need, us, need to help us with chairs. Someone's going to have to go round up some chairs and put some chairs around so we can seat everybody. There are a couple of chairs up here. There are several chairs up here. Three here, four there, two or three here, two there, four over there, two over there. So we have enough chairs. So y'all come on up front. This morning, we're beginning a study of what is typically called the doctrines of grace. You've heard us talk about the doctrines of grace over the years. The textbook that we are using is called What's So Great About the Doctrines of Grace by Richard Phillips. When we say we're using this as a textbook, what we don't mean is that we are going to be opening this book and by page by page or chapter by chapter talking about what he has already talked about. We're going to construct the classes in a way that we're going to complement what he says. We're going to say what he says and we're going to add to that and we may use different illustrations or whatever, but it will follow basically the track of the book. There are three other books, one by R.C. Sproul, one by Michael Horton, and one that is an edited edition, uh, Thomas Schreiner, Sovereign Grace, I think it's still Sovereign is the name of it. And those are other books that you might be wanting to read. Some of you might have, may have selected to read those as far as your metal round is concerned. But this would be the bibliography that we have set forth. It's not an exhaustive bibliography. The bibliography that is for this particular subject would fill the room. I mean, it is hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of volumes and writings on this particular subject. So again, thank you so much. If you have not purchased a copy of What's So Great About the Doctrines of Grace, I don't know where they are. I don't know whether they're outside or downstairs, but they are downstairs. And if you would, go ahead right after the class and go buy your copy because there are not that many of them and we may run out of them. And so immediately after the class, stampede downstairs, get your copy and make sure you have it. And if you didn't get a copy, let us know and we'll be glad to order more. So this morning we start this study of the doctrines of grace. I want to try to adhere to my notes pretty cl uh, uh, closely because I need to get through what I'm saying. So I hope not to deviate very much. Didn't say I won't deviate. I just don't want to deviate too much. Uh, the doctrines of grace. What is this? What is it? Well, I believe it's a term that basically describes the ways of God in saving us. 
the ways of God, what God has done, how has he done it, why has he done it, when has he done it, for whom has he done it. The doctrines of grace simply gather that into a theological presentation of the ways of God. You may remember in Psalm 103, verse 7, the Lord is talking about manifesting himself to Israel, manifesting himself to Moses. And in verse 7 of Psalm 103, we're told that the Lord made his ways made known to Moses and his acts to the people of Israel. Now, there's a differentiation. Moses sees the acts of God just as the people of Israel watch the acts of God. They see what's going on. I see that person was saved. I see that person has not been saved. I see that person has received Christ. I see that person thinks this is crazy. What's going on? I see this person is not saved yesterday, but was saved today. I talked to this person three years ago about the Lord, and nothing happened. They looked at me like I was crazy. And all of a sudden, yesterday afternoon, they heard somebody say something about Jesus, and boom, they got saved. What's going on? What's going on is the ways of God. What we're looking at is the dynamic of the doctrines of grace. Making known his ways to Moses, the Lord was revealing his grace ways, his way of saving his people. Now, I'm going to use that word way or ways throughout this because I felt being given by the Holy Spirit Wednesday morning, I felt this was the verse that God wants me to track with through this particular presentation this morning. Now, this understanding of the ways of God, this understanding, what did it do for Moses? It grace motivated, empowered, gave him the grace, endurance, and ability to function as God's leader in the deliverance of Israel. What is so important about this? What's so important about knowing all of this stuff? Can't I just live a decent Christian life without knowing all of these things? Well, perhaps you can. But who wants to live a decent, normal Christian life? I'm not for that. I am for radical, absolute, astounding, beyond belief living in Christ, aren't you? Who wants to live just average Christian lives? We're not into that. We're into the life that displays the mightiness of our great God. And one of the primary means of doing this is understanding, experiencing personally who this great God is. What he has done, how, why, for whom has he done what he's done in our salvation, in our sanctification, and in our security to the end. And grace flows in. Grace to be motivated. Grace to be empowered. Grace to endure. Grace of God for the display of the mighty name of our God. This is why this is so significant not only in this study, but in any and every study of the Word of God. So our hope is that this study will provide us with a clearer understanding of God's way of saving us. Why? So we will increase in our ability to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called from Philippians 4.1. Let's talk just a moment, and we're going to go through this very quickly. It's not any detail here. If you need more detail, some of these books have it, and other books have more detail for you if you're interested in diving into this, and hopefully many of you will be. The origin of the doctrines of grace. Where did they come from? Where did they come from? Well, they came from the Reformation. 
They came from John Calvin. We know that John Calvin and the Reformation started the whole issue of grace, the whole doctrine of grace thing. This is where they all came from. Well, if that's your answer, it's incorrect. Because you see, the doctrines of grace didn't begin there. Where did the doctrines of grace come from? Where, where, what's the origination of the doctrines of grace? God himself. Now, may we say that this morning? What we teach here today is not a man philosophy. This is a revelation that we have received from God himself from the very beginning. That he has given men through the years and giving us ability to understand through revelation of the Holy Spirit to bring together and tie all of these pieces together so we can see as we look at this puzzle piece and this puzzle piece and bring all of these puzzle pieces together as the truth is scattered throughout the Word of God as we bring it all into one great piece that we see all of it collected and in the midst of seeing it all collected we see the face of our Savior that's what's going on in the doctrines of grace it is that gathering together bringing it to the reality of who God is. You see, the doctrines of grace have their origins in God. Remember in Genesis chapter 3, the first statement of the doctrines of grace. Keith said this some kind of way the other day. I was floored when he said it. I didn't think he was this far along. <laughs> in verse 3, 6, Adam sinned. Remember in Genesis 2, 16 and 17, the Lord said, hey, every tree, here it all is. Don't eat of the fruit of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In verse 17 of chapter 2, you're going to die. In verse 3, I'm sorry, 6, chapter 3, he eats and he ate. The last three words of verse 6 in chapter 3. At that moment, Adam and Eve and all of humanity, at that moment, Adam and Eve and all of humanity were in eternal and desperate need of the activity of God's grace. At that moment is where grace for man, saving grace for man. We have creative grace before then, but saving grace for man, where did it come from? Why was it? Genesis 3, 6. And what does it say in Genesis 3, 9? Where are you? The first visible activity of God's grace immediately after the fall was God coming into the garden as he was wont to do with Adam and Eve in fellowship and he looked for them and the first words of grace the first words of the doctrine of grace is this Adam where are you where are you talking to Adam you see the doctrines of grace give us a biblical understanding of the ways of God in our salvation behind the acts of God. Remember in Psalm 103, made his ways to, made known to Moses, his acts to the children of Israel. The ways of God show us what's going on in the acts of God. So let us get below the acts or behind the acts of God. It's wonderful to see God is doing this and God is doing that and God saved this and God healed that. And with, that's great and wonderful. But what's more wonderful is what's underneath what God himself is doing and what he is displaying about himself. The ways of God are actually more absolutely astounding because the acts of God are just the fruit of this great root system. The doctrines of God. 
You remember in Genesis 37, some of you may have read the book. I don't know if you saw the movie. The ways of God behind his acts and the acts of men. You remember in Genesis 37, in verses 5 to 10, Joseph gets a couple of dreams. His brothers and his mom and them are going to all bow down to Joseph. You all going to bow down to me. And even Jacob says, I and your mother are even going to bow down. What was that a revelation of? It was a revelation, of course, he didn't understand at the time. It was a revelation of the ways of God in saving the people out of bondage. And when Joseph tells his brothers, they're not keen on this. And so they plot to kill him. In verse 18, the brothers say, we're going to kill him. We're going to kill the guy. What's behind the acts of God? What's behind here? God is decreeing that he will save his people out of bondage. Joseph is going to be a picture of what that looks like, especially in Christ. These men have determined we're going to kill Joseph in verse 18. But God is superintending what's going on behind the scenes. And so when they gather and they get Joseph together, they all grab him. And Reuben in verse 21 says, no, no, let's not kill him. Let's not do that. Let's just throw him in this pit. And the word says, because Reuben's thought was, his intention was, to come back later that night to sneak back in. Joseph, come on, come on, get up. We're taking you back to daddy. Reuben wanted to save his brother. But you see, had he done that, it would not have fulfilled the decree of God. It would not have fulfilled the purpose of God in saving the people. It would have... You know, what do you call it? Uh, Sidetrack that. And so in verses 25 to 29, when the brothers come back, Reuben is not there. Interesting. Reuben's not there. And you remember, the brothers sell him into slavery. And as a result of being in slavery, over the years, he goes in at the, uh, age 17, and at the age of 30, he becomes second to Pharaoh over all of Egypt. At the age of 30. Jesus was 30 when he started the ministry. At the age of 30, he becomes second to Pharaoh over all of Egypt. And as a result of being second to Pharaoh, he is able to exercise the authority of the state to save his people and bring them together in his own land. So what we're seeing here is the work of God. And Joseph explains this. What is going on? What is up with this? What is God doing? I don't understand it. God's ways to save his people. He was superintending his sovereign will among men. Listen to what Joseph said in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. As for you, talking to his brothers after he has revealed himself, it is Joseph. And of course, they're upset and they're afraid. He says, as for you, you meant this evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive for the saving of many as they are today. See, God... God's invisible, if you would, hand, orchestrating, moving, initiating, superintending, governing what was going on in the hearts and the activities of men and the acts of men. This is the doctrines of grace. In this one sentence, I believe, Joseph was explaining the entire doctrine of grace issue. I think it's an explanation, if you would, of what doctrines of grace is all about. The world, Satan, the devil, sin, the flesh, you all mean it, they all mean it for this. But God. Amen? Can you say amen occasionally? But God. But God. Aren't you glad that God is superintending the world? But God. 
It's not just a study of stuff. This is growing in our relationship and experience of who this God is. Thank God he's doing this. That we don't have a wimpy, limp-wristed God on the throne. But we have a majestic ruler on the throne. Doing what he will do. Therefore, we're saved today because it was God's will that we should be here. Somebody say, Amen. Amen. That's right. Screaming out. You see, God was sovereignly and freely choosing a people for himself through whom he would administer his way of salvation by grace. These doctrines, these doctrines of grace, have been a theological explanation of God's way of salvation from the very beginning. We're not going to be teaching church history in here. Perhaps one day we will teach a a course on church history, and I think it's very needed, and we've talked about doing that. So anticipate it one day. But if you were to look at the pages of church history, from the death of the apostles in the second century on, especially for the first 200 years, especially during that particular time, the doctrines of grace were being developed and talked about and discussed and understood and believed. This is the history, the meat of the, uh, the theology of the church. The doctrines of grace is not something new that just popped up a few hundred years ago at the Reformation. It has been part of the church heartbeat since Jesus himself self was conceived and since the apostles preached. And after that first century ongoing, it got, it got messed up. It got messed up. The church rose up and messed it all up for a number of years but the root is back there and so by the 16th century you remember the reformation was rebelling against Rome these men were being led by the Holy Spirit to do what to correct the theology of Rome the Roman Catholic Church to correct the theology to bring back the theology that the church had been teaching to a biblical base it had gone off the base not every part of it but significant aspects of it had gone off the base we don't have time this morning to talk about that but it had gone off base and God started raising up men like Luther and Calvin and all of these men that we've heard so much about beginning to change them and save them and give them ability and anointing and gifting by the Holy Spirit and revelation to what the Word of God really says and all of a sudden they began to see in the Word what they were not seeing in the church and they tried to reform the church they didn't try to knock it down and start all over again they said we need to get in here and correct and make biblical what we have been teaching the church rejected that of course you remember and the Reformation as it would as it were split the Christian community and so the reformers began to if you would revitalize they recaptured the doctrines of grace understanding and theology that had been from the beginning and they brought it back and began to teach and preach it And because of that, thousands of people were beginning to be saved. Because we're saved by grace and not by the work of our flesh. But something happened. In the 16th century, these doctrines came under the attack of a man and his followers called Jacob Arminius. They came under attack. And they, these men looked at these doctrines and they essentially rejected the biblical truth of God's sovereign and free right to choose a people for himself. He said, they were saying, no, this is not right. This is not true. 
they began to reject the basics. They rejected the biblical teaching that man is morally incapable. They rejected that man is morally incapable of being saved by his own merit or work of faith. Instead, they taught that man must first exercise faith in order to be forgiven, to be born again. They turned it around. The doctrines that had been taught since the beginning, they turned around. And as a result of that, The Synod of Dort, it was a church gathering in the Netherlands, got together and they came forth with five statements of faith that dealt with each of the five statements of unfaith, if you would, by the Arminians. And they corrected one statement at a time. They corrected the unbiblical comments or the unbiblical statements. They brought correction. That was the Synod of Dort. And although these five statements were in line with the teachings of John Calvin and other reformers, during the 20th century, they appeared under the acrostic tulip, T-U-L-I-P. Now, I think it's important to see this, and I don't want to make an emphasis of this, because our emphasis is not John Calvin, Martin Luther, August, Augustine, uh, the popes. The emphasis is the Word of God. You understand? The emphasis is the Word of God. We use these terms as helps, as road signs. But we don't make the road sign the road. The road is the Word of God. Are you with me? There will be road signs, and we will use road signs. And we will refer to signs. But the road is the Word of God. So don't leave the class thinking that this particular sign, these particular uh, titles or the essentials. They are means of discovering and keeping us on the right road to God. This Synod of Dort was, you know, had nothing to do with Calvin personally. This was not something that Calvin sat down and put together. It was after his time. So you have the five letters, TULIP, and I have, I think, listed in your notes what they stand for. Now, why study the doctrines of grace? And by the way, you will find out as we go into each of these letters that we're not going to be particularly happy with each letter the way it's laid out. We will not be happy with the word total depravity. We will not be happy with some of the terminology, but I'm not going to take the time today to deal with that. We'll deal with it in each class because they're much better terms. The term tulip was first seen in an article in 1913, and then it was kind of canonized, if you would, in 1963 in a very major teaching. And so since then, the word tulip has been used over and over again. Before then, this word would generally not have been known to reformers or to Calvinists or to churches like ours. We, we, you know, okay, a tulip is a flower. I don't know what all that is about. So we don't hang our hats on this, but we will use this as an acceptable device, but we will make alterations and adjustments to it. Why study the doctrines of grace? Well, the question really is what? Why study the Word of God? Remember what I said in the beginning. The doctrines of grace are a gathering of the history of God's work as seen from Genesis to Revelation an understanding of what that is gathering it all together into one place 
And so as, as we study the doctrines of grace, we are not studying what a man said or what a book says. We are studying what the Word of God says, what God himself says about himself, about his ways, and about us and our ways. This is what we are studying. Let's make sure that we understand that, that we're not making theology in and of itself as a study of the issue, but theology as the study of God. Theology, fails God, the ology part, the study of. We are studying God in here as we do every time when we gather around the Word of God. This is a study of God. So I'm very concerned to make sure that we don't see this as just something that we're doing in a book that we grab and we're trying to maintain a thought or tradition. We're studying the Bible. We're studying God. God is in this revealing himself to us in a greater way. So here's the reason, the main reason for studying this. 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17. All scripture is God-breathed or breathed out by God. And all scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. In righteousness. If you have that quote there, underline the word righteousness. Because that's going to become important next week. In order that the man or the woman, the person of God, may be competent and equipped for every good work, what? Of righteousness. Do you see that? Of righteousness is understood. Every good work, what? Of righteousness. So the issue is righteousness here. The issue is about God himself and about his own personal righteousness in our lives. So the doctrines of grace is really a systematized, if you would, theology, a systematized way of understanding God's ways that collects the scriptural information that pertains to God's way of saving his people. Are we clear on this? Is this making it clearer for you? Hopefully it is. Now, we're going to see that each letter of the tulip, as we go through these five statements, and we don't want to emphasize tulip, 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 tulip. And we don't want to all come dressed in tulips and putting T-U-L-I-P all over us and we're a tulip. We don't want to do that. But we want to make sure that we understand that each one of these five statements that we're going to be studying over the next several weeks enumerates, expands, explains, reveals by the Spirit an aspect of God's work of grace in saving, sanctifying, and securing us unto himself. All of these are going to be a means of getting us into the various ways of God that pertain to our salvation at the various, in the various, the way that God does that. I think I've already said that. Okay, now that's a general, general comment about this study. Now let me talk about one or a couple of other things. Our posture in studying the doctrines. Now I don't mean whether you're sitting up straight or you're leaning over. Our mental, emotional, spiritual, attitudinal, critical, acceptable, whatever posture in studying these doctrines. You know, when we study or systematize biblical truth called theology, bringing it together, systematize, gathering the pieces together into a picture puzzle that we can see the truth in a way that we can't see it a little bit here a little bit there a little bit there a little bit there but bring it all together that's theology that's theology aren't you glad for theology thank god for the study of doctrine 
If not, we just wouldn't understand very much at all. And so when we study this, there is always a potential in every one of us because we still live in fallen, sin-corrupted, infused bodies. Because of that, there is this great potential for arrogance in each one of us. And I want you to know that. It's in me, although you would be surprised about it, I'm sure. It's even in my wife. Now, that may blow you away, but you knew that anyway. Arrogance. There's the potential of arrogance. And I want you to see this. And I want each one of us to own this personally. I have the potential of becoming arrogant in this information. Remember 1 Corinthians 8.1. I think it's 8.1, isn't it? Yeah, Paul talks about knowledge does what? Knowledge by itself does what? Puffs up. And Paul was always concerned about the people not just getting knowledge and knowledge and knowledge. I need to know more. I need to know more. I need to know more. Why? Because I can know more and know more. Why? Because so I can know more and know more. So I can be shown to know more. No, that's arrogance. The place of the gathering and the increasing in knowledge should bring us to greater humility for the purpose of bringing about the reality of that knowledge through the way we live. Theology is God's great means of training us for living the theology. God is not nearly as interested in if we understand what the hypostatic union is as he is living the reality of what that hypostatic union is all about in our lives. Now, don't worry about that word. I don't understand it either. Evan May will explain it to you at some time or another. Just a word that I saw written on the wall of his office the other day. Uh, how not to be puffed up? How not to be puffed up? How not to be puffed up? Let us pay particular attention here because each one of us is personally and potentially ready for this. First, we must remember that our salvation is God's gift to us. Can we start on that basis? Our salvation is God's gift. How many of you know that if you have to ask for a gift, it isn't a gift. How many of you wait on Christmas morning sitting there under the tree and your kids come in, okay, which one are you going to ask first? No. You're giving gifts. You're giving gifts. And theirs is receiving gifts and receiving gifts. Amen? God is giving, giving. And we're like the little bird with the mouth open and we're receiving receiving. We didn't ask for this gift. God gave it to us and we received it. So let us first begin on that ground. That we are here today because of the most astounding work of grace in our lives. The death of God's Son for our salvation. If nothing else humbles you and washes away the arrogance, if this doesn't, I'm not sure what's I don't know if we're saved. Second, we must remember that everything we know about God, may I repeat that? We must remember that everything we know about God and therefore have experienced about God and His ways is a result of His grace of revelation. His grace of revelation. Paul tells the uh, Galatians in chapter 1, verse 12, he says, what I understand here, and believe me, all of us together don't understand what the Apostle Paul knew by himself. All of us together don't understand what he knew by himself. 
And he says, I didn't get this on my own. I didn't get it from a bunch of folks. I got it from God. Does that mean that nobody else was involved and he didn't read? No. It means that whatever was there, God gave it to him specifically by revelation. By revelation. Anything we understand and everything we understand about God, about ourselves, about the ways of God, is not ours indigenously. It is given to us from God, coming from the outside, if you would, into the inside of us as God's gift of grace. Third, we must remember that when we... Here's something very important. Hopefully it all is. I want to make this a real emphasis this morning. We must remember that we will. May I repeat that? We what? Could you say it one more time? We what? We will encounter mystery in the studying of God's ways. So therefore, get ready to be confronted with mystery and to be comfortable with not understanding everything. And don't do what the world does. Because we don't understand, it isn't true. Don't do that because we don't do that in any other area of our life. I don't understand how cell phones work or what these things are and so on and how we could go on Google and Google a phrase and get in an instant 20 billion things about that. How does that work? Anybody can tell me the definitively how that works? No. So we don't reject it because we don't understand it. There is very deep mystery here. Certainly God has given us a measure of revelation. But friends, he has not given us all revelation. This is what God has given us. Everything necessary for life and godliness has been granted to us by his divine power. Remember 2 Peter 1.4. Amen? So what we have is what God has deemed necessary. What he hasn't deemed necessary, we don't want and we don't want to go after because it will get us into trouble. When you look at heresies, the heresies are there because they have tried to get beyond God's mystery. They have tried to go beyond what God has revealed and have created systems of theology that, quote, to them make sense. Because the reality is that this issue about God and who he is and what he's done and his ways simply doesn't make sense to the natural mind. It doesn't make sense. You'll see that as we go through it. It's going to be mind-twisting. You're going to need some excedrins as we go through these things. And you're going to be leaving here as the Apostle Paul did, as I'll quote in a moment, scratching your head. You see, we are infinite and fallen. Anybody in here? And I'm sorry, we're finite and fallen, sorry. Anybody in here infinite? Anybody in here not fallen to sin? We're all finite. We're all fallen. And we will not come to a full and adequate understanding of the ways of God. It ain't going to happen. It isn't going to happen. Therefore, let's allow these three scriptures that I'm going to read to be the atmosphere in which we listen, learn, and live out God's truth. Let these scriptures be the atmosphere. And each week, hopefully, these will be the scriptures under which and through which and in which we will hear the word of God. Number one, Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways. We're talking about the ways of God. Declares the Lord, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. So let's keep that in mind. We're studying the ways of of an infinite, eternal God. 
we're not going to get most of it. We're going to get just a little bit of it. Just enough that God has given us to work the full power of his grace. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 9 and verse 12. What does verse 9 say? This is, who's speaking? Paul, the apostle Paul. He says, we. Who's we? It means himself too. He says, we. I. I don't know everything. Do you see what verse 9 says? What does he say? I don't know everything. Can all of us agree to that? I don't know everything. What does verse 12 say? I'm looking in the mirror and it's all fuzzy. He's restating what? We don't know everything. There's mystery. There's depth. In Romans eleven thirty three, Paul has just finished chapters 9, 10, and 11, not even counting the first eight chapters of Romans dealing with justification by faith. But then he's dealing with the sovereign issues of God as a selection of this person and not that person and how he's doing this and how he's doing that and how he passed over this and he grabbed that. And, and Paul gets to the end of it. He says, you know, I know what I wrote was true. I just don't get it. What does he say? Oh, the what? The, what word did he use? What word? The shallowness. The what? Oh, the depth. Both of the riches and wisdom of God. What are they? They're beyond what? Understanding. They're inscrutable, depending on what your verse says. Paul's standing there having dictated this letter. And I believe he's, after he gets finished it, he stops a moment and says, you know, Samuel, I, I know what I just told you. It's true. It's from God. I don't get it all. I just know it's true. But I can't explain. I don't get it. I think there was a vast lack of understanding in Paul, just as there is in us. And do you notice he doesn't complain about it? You know he doesn't, but we're going to get this thing. We're going to work it out. We're going to come up with something that makes sense. He leaves it alone. Number four, we must remember not to evaluate because of the mystery, because of the humility, we come to this. We must not, please remember this, we must not fall prey to evaluating God and his ways by using our natural logic, nor to determine what God should or should not do. It was not fair. It was not right. God can't do that by trying to figure out on our own. Very, very dangerous. It's the clay telling the potter, hey, get your hands off me that way. I want you to do it this way. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Can we remember? We're going to get hit with mystery. We're not going to understand it. But let's not fall prey to the natural mind's inclination Led by the flesh, Satan himself. Let's call God into question. How many of you have ever heard when you share the truth, people say, well, God wouldn't do that. God can't do that. How many? God shouldn't do that. How many of you have ever heard any of these things? Some of you have. And look, people get downright angry about these things. They're ready to fight. Because their God, the way they have created them, is not the way God presents himself in this book. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural mind, you know, whether a person saved or not, our natural logical thinking. The natural person does not accept the things of God, the Spirit of God, for their folly to him, their foolishness, as I've already said, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. 
Number five, we must remember not to allow our understanding of the very deep things of God, I'm putting it in quotes, the deep things of God, to produce any type of criticism toward others who might either not understand or who even might disagree. Now let us not allow our understanding of what we have Hopefully, our understanding is as correct as it can be, as accurate as it can be. But let us not take that as a criticism of those who either don't get it or have an opposite understanding and who are believers. There is no place in Christ for us to reject other believers, believers whose theology is different than ours in some of these issues. Amen? Can you say amen on that? That's critical. Because there are huge divisions within the body of Christ that God himself, I think, is more displeased with these divisions over issues of understanding because we all lack understanding and we have allowed division to come in. And it is the unity of Christ that shows the world that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are one. And we are showing something contrary to the very structure and relationship within God himself among the three persons of the Trinity. Allowing our thought of this and our understanding of that. We're talking about these issues that are not central to the faith. We run up with somebody and he says, I'm a believer, but I don't believe Jesus was divine. You're not a believer. Amen? We don't fellowship that way with that person. But we're talking about genuine, born-again, spirit-indwelt believers. Let us not get into fights and have disunity and criticism of other believers who are not going to understand or who won't agree with us. That's not the love of God. That's not the love of God. Let's show God's love, the control of God's love in all things. Let us be constrained, controlled by the love of God. If you want to know what the love of God looks like, 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through the beginning of verse 8. What does that look like? How am I supposed to relate to others when they don't agree, don't understand, or criticizing me, or casting aspersions against me because I believe this? 1 Corinthians, what did I just say? 13, verses 4 to the first statement in verse 8. That's how you're to respond. That would be the response that you should give, that I must give. It may be irritating to us. We may not like what others say and think, but our response must be the love of God. Why? Because they also are children of God. And God doesn't want fights among his children. There may be disagreements, but he doesn't want fights. Let's allow this study to fill us with the wonder and the amazement of God's manifold grace in saving us through the death and resurrection of his son as we together grow in his grace for his glory. Next week, read the first chapter, whatever it is, book that you're dealing with for the first statement. For the tulip, it would be total depravity. And we'll see you next week. We begin at 845. Thank you so much.